We're continuing our study through this incredible letter of freedom. We're calling this series The Surprising Power of Grace. And this morning, we're going to look at the power of paradigm. What's a paradigm? It's a framework through which we understand life or elements of life. It's a lens through which we look at life and try to comprehend it. As followers of Christ, we're called to consistently live out a paradigm of the gospel. Salvation, eternal life, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But how many of us truly grasp the fullness of the paradigm of the gospel? I think you've probably heard the story, the old Hindu tale of six blind men who heard that there was going to be a strange animal brought into their village. Now, the animal was an elephant, but they didn't know what an elephant was. Since they were blind, they never saw an elephant. In other words, they lacked a paradigm by which they could understand an elephant. But they decided that they were going to learn a paradigm of the elephant by a sense of touch. So the first blind man grabbed a hold of the trunk, and he said, well, it's obvious this animal is much like a thick snake, a python. The second blind man touched the tusk, and he said, no, this animal is hard and smooth. It's, it's like a spear. And the third blind man touched the ear and said, you're both wrong. It's like a, a giant leaf fan. The fourth blind man grabbed a hold of the leg and said, no, this animal is like a tree. The fifth blind man touched the side of the elephant and said, no, it's obvious this animal is like a wall. And the sixth blind man touched the tail and says, you're all blind it is clear that this animal is like a rope. See, the point is, they didn't have a paradigm to understand elephants. And so based on their subjective experience, they created a perspective, a paradigm, a framework that they thought was an elephant. Their problem was they missed the forest for the trees. They got so wrapped up in the details they didn't understand how all those parts came together to give them a paradigm of what an elephant is. And guess what? We're tempted to do the same thing with the gospel. We're tempted to do the same thing with the Christian life. We're tempted to do the same thing with Scripture. We tend to lose the forest for the trees. And the Galatians were in danger. These churches, these young new Christians in southern Turkey were in danger of losing a gospel paradigm. Or perhaps they never really understood the fullness of the paradigm of the gospel. Particularly, they were, they were losing the forest of Jesus for the trees of the law, of the Jewish life of thinking the people of God could only be by becoming Jews. And so Paul writes contrasting a legal paradigm with a gospel paradigm. 
And the power of paradigm is critical to us walking with Jesus Christ. So let's all stand out of reverence for God's Word. It's a lengthy passage. We're going to be actually studying some lengthy passages because they've sort of got to be kept together. This is Galatians 3, 10 to 29. This is God's Word. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus." And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. May God bless the hearing and teaching of his inspired, infallible, inerrant, and authoritative word. This is God's word. He gave it to us because he loves us. And he wants us to know what it means to live in the paradigm of the gospel the good news of Jesus Christ. 
Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. It's so critical, this passage. Help us to understand the parts of the gospel so that we could see the wholeness of Jesus and walk more closely and intimately and obediently with him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and have a seat. So in this text, Paul reveals the danger of exchanging a gospel-centered paradigm for a law-centered paradigm. Grace, law, performance, works. Three choices we face related to building a gospel-centered paradigm. First choice, choose the paradigm of blessing over the paradigm of cursing. Do you know why there's so little love by so many people for Jesus? Because we really don't appreciate what He's done. Why? Because we really don't appreciate what we deserve. Why? Because we really don't understand what the law of God exposes us as. Look at verse 10. All who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. Divine rejection. Under wrath. You know, in our world today, people outside the church and some even inside the church have a paradigm of God that is inaccurate. They'll all cry, God is love, God is love, God is love. And make no mistake, God is love. But the paradigm of God is much broader than that. God is also holy. God is also just. God can, in fact, and will one day, display wrath. Why? Because he is holy, and the law reveals what it's like to be holy, and none of us have kept the law. That's what it says in verse 10. If you're relying on the works of the law, if you're relying on your performance, you need to realize you're under a curse. Why? Because cursed be everyone, listen to this now, everyone, without exception, who doesn't basically abide, continue to do. All the time, all things written in the law and continually, constantly do them without fail. Do, do you see how, how tight the noose is getting, folks? Paul is being so absolutely clear. If you're relying on the law for acceptance with God, you are putting yourself under a curse. James 2 says the same thing, our half-brother of our Lord. He said, if a man keeps the entire law, yet fails at one point, he becomes guilty of breaking all of it. See, God's holiness, you, you can't minimize it. It's perfection. So now, verse 11 makes sense. So now... It ought to be evident. It ought to be obvious. It ought to be clear. Why no one can be justified by the law. No one can be right with God by law-keeping, by performance, by works. 
verse 12, Paul says, on the contrary, the one who does them will live by them. In other words, if you're trying to get life by your, the works of the law, you have to live by those law continually, without fail. That's what Paul's saying. And so what he's saying is, there is no one who gains life through the law, not even one. So what do we do? If we're under the paradigm of curse of the law, what's our other choice? We choose the paradigm of blessing. How? Look at verse 13. Christ, the Messiah, redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now, the Old Testament church, Israel, didn't crucify people. The Romans did that. But the Israelites, the Old Testament church, would stone people for capital offenses. And then after the man or woman was dead, they would take their dead body and put it on a tree for all to see so that everyone would know that this behavior causes someone to be rejected by God under God's wrath and curse. But Paul expands that from capital crimes and says that if we don't obey every single element of the law all the time, constantly, without fail, we are under a curse. But Jesus was hung on a tree. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he was receiving the curse that we all deserve because we fail to keep the law. Second Corinthians 5, Paul says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So, if we're in Christ, Christ has taken the curse and look at verse 14. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. See, the paradigm of the gospel is the paradigm of, again, salvation by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Now, I will say there's, in the paradigm of cursing, there are, there are two varieties. And I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. There's legalism and there's nomism. Legalism is seeking to be right with God for eternal life by trying to earn it, by trying to earn your way to heaven. That's legalism. And the consequences of legalism is the curse of God, the wrath of God, in a literal hell, in torment, away from the presence of God, experiencing the curse and wrath of God forever. But there's another kind or variety of the paradigm of cursing, and that's what's called nomism. Nomism, the Greek word namas, is a Christian believing that God will smile upon you only if you obey the word, the law, the commands. And if you fail to obey God, then you're under what I call the curse of conscience under nomism. 
Under legalism, you're under the curse of God Himself, the wrath of God. In gnomism, you experience the curse of conscience. In other words, you either are cursed with self-righteousness, if you actually think you're fulfilling the law and other people aren't, that's a curse. Self-righteousness is a curse. God opposes the proud, gives grace to the humble. Or, more likely, if you're understanding verse 10 and the curse of the law, you're cursed with a conscience of self-despair. You're feeling defeated. You're feeling unworthy. You're feeling that God is always turning His back on you. So legalism, the curse of God's wrath. Gnomism, the curse of conscience, either self-righteousness or self-despair. And so Paul says clearly there's two paradigms, one of blessing, one of cursing. If you're under performance, under the law, you are going to experience curse. But if you're in Christ, boasting in Christ, resting in Christ, you've transferred your trust from your own efforts and your own performance to the obedient and substitutionary work of Christ, then you experience blessing. Now, verse 10 comes from the Old Testament. Cursed is everyone who doesn't continually abide in, keep in, always the works of the law. Deuteronomy 27 and 28. There's a place in Israel called Shechem. It's not called Shechem anymore. It's got a new name. But it's north of Jerusalem. It's in the middle of Israel. It is sort of just west of the Jordan River in between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea. Now, God had Moses at Shechem divide the 12 tribes into two groups, six tribes each. Now, remember, at this point, there are hundreds of thousands of Israelites in the 12 tribes. To the north of Shechem, there's a mountain called Mount Ebal. To the south of Shechem, there's a mount called Mount Gerizim. Half the tribes were on Mount Ebal, and guess what they were supposed to do? They were supposed to shout out the curses of the law so that people would realize if you fail to obey the law, you're cursed. In Deuteronomy 28, there's a group of people on Mount Gerizim, the other six tribes, and they're to shout the blessings to themselves and to each other if you continually keep the commands of the law. So guess what we're going to do today? We're going to revisit Shechem and we're going to reenact it. Everybody from this side over, stand. Come on. Come with me. We're going to Shechem. Okay? You all are going to pronounce the curses on anyone who fails to keep the law. You're going to listen to the curses. And you're next. Say it with me. Cursed be the man who makes a carved or a cast metal image, an abomination to the Lord, a thing made by the hands of a craftsman, and sets it up in secret. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who dishonors his father or his mother, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who moves his neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. 
and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood, and all the people shall say, Amen. Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Now you need to realize this is just a smattering of the curses from Mount Ebal that were pronounced on the tribes for disobedience. Thanks. Have a seat. Okay, y'all's turn. Stand up. You get to pronounce the blessings on everyone who obeys God's law perfectly. Now, what's interesting, this occurs in Deuteronomy 28. There are only a brief set of blessings, and then guess what 28, chapter 28 does? It goes back to curses. Really interesting. This whole paradigm of cursing, if you're putting yourself under the law. But you at least get to pronounce blessings for perfect obedience. Okay? Y'all keep that in mind. Perfect obedience. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the field. Blessed shall be the fruit of your womb, and the fruit of your ground, and the fruit of your cattle, the increase of your herds, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake. And he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he, has, as he has sworn to you, if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways. All those blessings for perfect, unfailing obedience. Thank you. Have a seat. Okay, how'd you experience that exercise? Okay, a little awkward. That's fine. Participative. I hope. If you are choosing the paradigm of the law, performance, works, self, you probably felt a little threatened. Threatened for your disobedience. Or maybe you thought, I better get busy if I want those blessings. But if you're in the paradigm of blessing, if you're in Christ, if you're resting in Christ alone, you should experience joy, even at the pronouncement of the cursings. You see, he was forgiven much, loves much. And the reason why Jesus is so little loved is because we really don't appreciate the curse. We deserve cursing. And every day we live, the law reminds us again and again of the cursing we deserve. 
And when we understand how great our sin is, the enormity of it, and what our sin deserves, and we realize Christ became a curse for us, well then, then he becomes the pearl of great price. Jesus, listen now, Jesus is the newer and better Mount Ebal. He took the curse. And Jesus is the newer and better Mount Gerizim. And he gained the blessing. And if you know Christ, you are in a paradigm of blessing. All the curse has been removed. And all the blessings have been purchased on your behalf. Secondly, choose the paradigm of promise over the paradigm of law. So many people get tripped up because they miss the forest for the trees. We get so easily tripped up in the gospel paradigm because we don't understand the place of the law and the place of promise, the place of covenant. So Paul uses a common human example. He uses a will, a last will and testament. Laura and I have one. We've actually had one many, many years, and each time we go overseas, we usually end up changing it somehow. But, but the fact is, whatever our last will is, is what is, and it's unchangeable unless we change it. Paul says God made a last will and testament, but it never changed It's going to continue to be his last will and testament. And he gave it to Abraham. But he gave it to Abraham by a promise, not by the law. Because the law hadn't even been given when God gave Abraham his last will and testament. The promise, the covenant. You see, a problem in our day is there's only one covenant of grace for all time. It's just administered differently in the church that was a minor, a child in the Old Testament, and the church that is a full heir, an adult, in the New Testament. But they're not two covenants. There's one covenant of grace in two administrations of grace. And if we confuse those, we are going to experience discouragement or worse. So verse 15, even if a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's ratified. The promises were made to Abraham, verse 16, and to his offspring. By the way, you want a proof of inspiration and inerrancy? Paul says it comes down to every single letter. You want to trust God's Word? Paul says it comes down to even the the mark of a pen. That's how much we can trust God's providence and God's sovereignty in giving us the Word of God as He wants it. Paul makes his case right here based on a letter, a stroke of a pen. Not two offsprings, meaning many, but two offspring, meaning one, Jesus. The promise was made to Abraham and to Christ. 
And Abraham believed God because there was nothing else to do. There wasn't any law yet. The law, Paul says in verse 17, came 430 years later. Then Paul goes on to say that the law was put into place by angels through an intermediary. Angels are talked about in the Old Testament as being those who brought Moses, the intermediary, the law. But he says in verse 20, but God is one. Have you ever wondered what these verses mean? It means the law is inferior. God is one. God showed up directly. No intermediary. God gave Abraham the promise directly. He is one. He did it directly. And Jesus showed up, God in the flesh, to give us salvation directly. So if you're understanding the argument here, Paul is saying it's the paradigm of promise. Listen to this. The Bible as a whole is a paradigm of promise. So now you should be asking that question that Paul asks in verse 19. Okay, so then why the law? Why do we even have the law? Well, Paul gives the answer, verse 19, because of transgressions. Do you understand what he's saying here? The whole purpose of the law was to prove to us that we are sinners. That's the purpose of the law. Now, are there other purposes of the law? Yes, but not in this passage. In this passage, Paul's focusing on one use of the law, and that use is to expose you and me as desperate sinners. See, the law was meant to reveal it is a path to death. It is a path to wrath. Because if you are putting yourselves under performance, you have nothing to show for it but failure. Do you understand that? I wish I could beat this into my head, let alone y'all's. We never fulfill God's law. Even our tears of repentance are stained with self. And sin. So, what's the purpose of the law? Look at verse 22 23. The law imprisoned everything under sin. Are you catching Paul's argument? Folks, the whole purpose of the law is not to give you a ladder through which you can think you can climb up into the lap of God's favor and delight. The purpose of the law is exactly the opposite. The purpose of the law is to drive you and me to absolute despair. So that we would hope for Christ. See, Paul says even another question. He said, he said is the law contrary then to the promises of God? Paul says, certainly not. Paul says the purpose of the law was actually to make the promise more necessary. Look, if you talk to someone about grace and they don't understand the curse they're under, grace is just blah, 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 blah. It means nothing. But if the law exposes you as hopeless, there is hope that when Christ is presented, you see Him as necessary. 
you see him as essential. You see him as that which your soul longs for because you're despairing of self. The law confines us to condemnation. Verse 24, the law was our guardian. The law was a strict governor or governess. The law is a strict disciplinarian. The law is a switch that every time you put your toe over the line goes whack. You failure. People, the reason why we feel guilt, we are guilty. And we need to stop fighting guilt and start acknowledging guilt. The worst thing you think about yourself is not as bad as you are. Now you think, Bob, this is depressing. It's depressing if if you're in the paradigm of law. It's not depressing if you're in the paradigm of promise. Do you hear me? It's only depressing if you're wanting to build your own record of righteousness. Then it's depressing. Because then you are a failure. But if you're in the paradigm of promise, the law is sent by God to discipline you as a failure so that you would recognize that's why Christ came, for failures. And your hope in Jesus would be more complete and more restful. And your joy then is unassailable. It can't change. Because God's smile and delight upon you is because of what Christ has done not because of what you do. The problem is we got to see Jesus. See, so often we're looking at self. We're looking at the law instead of the promise, instead of at Jesus. You ever seen these puzzles? The, the top line, all that's, don't, don't worry about that. The top line is simply revealing the pieces that are used in the bottom line. So in the bottom line, what do you see? Well, see, I've seen other puzzles that are much more obvious. This one's tough. And it's supposed to be. You almost have to squint. You have to, change, you have to change your paradigm. You have to squint. If you squint at the bottom line and you look at the spaces and not the lines, you should see Jesus. That's my point. Our paradigm is so law-oriented that we lose sight of Jesus. And it takes a change of paradigm, a change of perspective, a change of lens. Some of you are still wondering. I still don't see Jesus. You know... That's actually the whole point of the illustration. Some of us are staring at the cross and we still don't see Jesus. Right? We need to choose the paradigm of the promise. Jesus said that Abraham said that Abraham saw Christ's day and rejoiced. Are you seeing Jesus? And then, thirdly and finally, we need to choose the paradigm of sonship over the paradigm of slavery. The law makes us slaves to condemnation. The law makes us slaves to guilt and shame. And the only way out is the paradigm of sonship. Look at verse 26. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Now listen, Paul's not being sexist here. And and we can say sons and daughters, and yeah, that's fine. But you're going to minimize what Paul's saying if you say sons and daughters. Sons of God. In Paul's day, the one who received the inheritance was the firstborn son. 
Not saying it's right, wrong, or indifferent. I'm just saying in Paul's day, the firstborn son was the only one who received the inheritance. Paul is saying that if you're trusting in Christ Jesus, you've become the firstborn son. And the inheritance is yours. Are you living under the paradigm of slavery? Slavery to sin's penalty? Slavery to sin's power? Or are you living as a son? I want you to notice how many times Christ is emphasized in these last few verses. Verse 26, in Christ Jesus. Verse 27, as many as are baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. Uh, Verse uh, 28, we are are one in Christ. Verse 29, if you are Christ's. Paul is just saying, look at the puzzle. Keep seeing Jesus. Keep seeing Jesus. Look, when you focus on self and your performance, your encouragement and joy and peace is going to go down. If you're focused on Christ, your encouragement, peace, and joy is going to go up. That's why the law is given to get us to despair of self, even as Christians. One of the purposes of the law is to drive us to despair of self so that we would run to Christ again. The old Puritans put it like this, for every glance at your sin, gaze ten times as long upon Christ. Look, if you're depressed this morning, I promise you, you're in the paradigm of law. You're in the paradigm of curse. You're in the paradigm of slavery. If you're in the paradigm of Christ, there's nothing I've said today that's discouraging. Nothing. Because it all points us to Jesus. That's the whole point of the law. Get over yourself already. Honestly, that's the gospel. Get over yourself already and get into Jesus because he makes you sons. Verse 27, as many have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Baptism is a symbol. I look over here because that's usually the baptismal font there. It's a symbol of being washed with clean water, being anointed with the Holy Spirit, being sprinkled with the blood of Christ. If we've been baptized by the Spirit into Christ, by grace, through faith, in Christ, we've been brought into union with Christ, and everything that is true of Jesus is true of us. Like the the younger prodigal son that squandered his father's inheritance. That's what the law tells us. We are all prodigal sons. Of course, the older son was prodigal too, but he was filled with self-righteousness. He had the curse of self-righteousness versus self-despair. But the point is, the father put the robe on on the son. We put on Christ. We're covered with his righteousness. Do you realize that? You are covered in God's presence with the very righteousness of Christ, if, if, Paul says, you are Christ's. So how do you know if you're Christ's? Are you resting in His finished work? See, if you're looking to your performance to discern whether you've trusted in Christ, who are you trusting in? You're in the paradigm of curse, you're the paradigm of law, and you're in the paradigm of slavery. But If, as you're exposed as sinners, you say, oh, Jesus, have mercy, then you're in the paradigm of blessing. Then you're in the paradigm of promise. 
then you're in the paradigm of sonship. Now, make no mistake, Paul's hammering here on our failure to keep the law. In Galatians 5, Paul's going to say, now, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. See, the law does reveal what is right and good and true. And there is a sense in which the law points us to how to live an obedient, godly, holy life. But I promise you, folks, we're going to fail and fail and fail. And what the law continues to do for the Christian is expose us as desperately needy sinners who continually need to run to Christ. By the way, all this passage teaches is the gospel waltz. Okay? If, you're not, if you're new to Oak Mountain, the gospel waltz is the Christian three-step dance with Christ through which we experience God's power and forgiveness. The law says we're under a curse. The law exposes us. So repent. Don't get all wrapped up in guilt and shame and condemnation. Just admit your sin and repent. And then Jesus became a curse for us. And in Christ we're blessed. So believe. Believe the gospel afresh. And then yes, we put on Christ. We've been baptized into Christ. As we put on Christ, Christ lives in us. Paul says in Galatians 2.20, It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. There is a life to live. Fight. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, gospel waltz. Repent, believe, fight. Repent, believe, fight. And that's how we come to the table. We come to the table repentantly. We don't come to the table saying, God, look at me, come and have dinner with me. We come to the table and say, oh, Christ, have mercy. We come repentantly. Then we partake of the elements believingly, right? We believe the promises of the gospel concerning Christ. We believe in the power of the gospel concerning Christ in us. And then we depart fightingly. We depart pursuing new obedience. The night on which Christ was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. This is my life cursed for you. Then after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for the remission of sins of many. Drink from it, all of you, and give thanks. Let's pray. God, we understand these elements are just bread, and the fruit of the vine, we realize they don't change. And God, we realize there's nothing magical here. But God, you also have promised that Christ is spiritually present as we come repentantly and partake believingly and by your grace, commit to depart fightingly. And so, Jesus, come, heal us. Heal our consciences. Heal us from the condemnation of the law. Heal us from our, our self-centeredness and our self-reliance. And Lord, heal us from our self-indulgence as well. In Jesus' name, amen.